Welcome to Zero Five O. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast, where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. This episode of Zero Five O is released during Glasgow's COP26, and I'm delighted to welcome Professor Mark Maslin, who is Professor of Earth System Science at University College London, to the show. Mark has written eight books on climate change, dozens of articles, and acted as advisor to David Attenborough's 2019 documentary on climate change. In his latest book, Mark said the following, and it's great to be able to quote a guest on the show. The challenge of the 21st century is that we must learn to think and act as a global species so that we can take care of all individuals, our global species, and our planet that we rely on for everything. And emphasis on the last line, the planet that we're living on, turns out we do rely on it for everything, so important to look after it. Humans are a unique species, and in his latest book, Mark explains how we can find a route out of the climate emergency. And I really hope that this intelligence and optimism is rising to the surface in Glasgow as you listen to this episode. Welcome to Zero Five O, Mark. It's a huge pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for such a lovely introduction. I don't think I need to say anything more. Well, you made it nice and easy with the quote. And um, I'm just going to go straight in there at the start. How to Save Our Planet, The Facts, your latest book. Bloody brilliant. And uh, it's, it's so nice to have a good, succinct summary of the problem we're in, but also lots of solutions for how we get out of it. So a definite must-have uh, read for everybody. So we've got ourselves into a right pickle, haven't we? How did it happen? Before we get on to solutions, really, how did it happen? And how did this lovely species called humans overrun the planet? So I think the most important thing to realize about humans is that we are constantly inventing new ways of living. And the Industrial Revolution was just this incredible thing that occurred in the north of England, which then spread around the world and is still spreading. And the key thing that humans need is energy. We use energy all the time, everything in our lives. And if we look at all the revolutions that have occurred throughout human history, it's always been about new energy, whether we're inventing fire, whether it's the agricultural revolution, whether it's the invention of sailing ships, we're always needing more energy. And so the Industrial Revolution was a brilliant revelation, which is there's all these fossil fuels, which if you burn, creates heat, energy, and then finally we worked out that we can actually burn them to actually create electricity. And that fueled the development and expansion of humanity across the world. It just happens that it has a side effect, which is releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And like many things in humanity, we do things and then we realize there's a consequence and then we have to clean up our mess. The power of people, because it's quite conceptual, greenhouse gases, and there's, there's a section in, in your book around the power of humanity. And I think it's a really good way of bringing to the fore of how much we're changing our environment. And it's this fact that we move, we have more influence on rocks and the geology of the environment than all of the natural sort of processes put together. Could you, I find it a good way of bringing things to light in a more sort of tactile way. Well, I think this is the important thing that people need to realize is that we always bang on about climate change and how we're changing the atmosphere. But I think people 
don't realize how much we're impacting the whole planet. And this is why scientists are using the new term, the Anthropocene, that we are now in a new geological period of time defined by humans. And as you said, we already move more soil, rock or sediment than all the natural processes put together. We have created enough concrete to cover the whole world, including the oceans, in a layer two millimeters thick. We make over 300 million tons of plastic every single year, which basically is found in every part of our environment and the ocean, including a plastic bag that was found at the bottom of the Marianas Trench in the North Pacific, which is about seven kilometers deep. And do you know what really I wished? I really wished it actually had a supermarket logo like Walmart or Marks and Spencers on because then we really could have pointed the finger. Unfortunately, it was just a plain white plastic bag. So I'm really intrigued that there's thousands of articles written, hundreds of thousands of articles written on the impact of climate every year. And it's really interesting that we're starting to see now more and more evidence around the tipping points, more and more evidence of extreme weather. And there's a lot going on, but some people are sort of funneling all of that into more doom and more sort of problems. The interesting thing, I think, from your approach is that you're summarizing, you know, the impact of the Anthropocene and where we are and how we've got to it. But then you're saying there's a route out of this. And are you finding that more of your time is on explaining and trying to influence how we get out of this? Or are you still writing a lot of papers and doing presentations around sort of the problem we're in? Is the, is the, is the balance shifting? I think the narrative is changing. And I think it's really interesting that we are now moving from all the doom and gloom, which is still there. I mean, if you look at all the extreme weather events that have occurred in 2021, they are mad. I mean, incredibly extreme. And actually, the worrying thing is many scientists who I deeply respect have gone public and said, okay, we've warmed the planet by 1.1 or 1.2 degrees Celsius. These are not the extreme events we would expect for that warming. These are things we'd expect for a much warmer planet. So we're already seeing things that are becoming more apocalyptic. However, most of my time is then turning around going, okay, it's a problem. But humans have always had problems, and we've already got all the solutions. We've already got all the technology. We've already got all the incredible sort of like uh, business leaders. We've already got all the incredible entrepreneurs. What we don't have is the policies. And I think what is really problematic is people don't like change. Hey, I'm with you, okay? So I hate it when my phone gets upgraded or I have to choose a new car, etc. You know, we all stress about change. But the interesting thing is that all the changes that I'm suggesting and many of my other colleagues are suggesting to decarbonize the world and to improve our environment also improves people's lives. So they'll make them healthier, they'll make them wealthier, they'll make their lives sort of like fairer and more equitable and also safer. Again, these win-win solutions, I basically talk to people and they go, well, why aren't we doing this? And again, I think that's the key. It's this trying to get over the inertia politically in the political system and actually try to get that push to say, these are all very positive things. You should be doing them anyway, even if they weren't saving the planet. And why are we stuck, do you think? Because the young generation seem to be saying, come on, we're ready. Some of the older generation are saying, you know, we're willing to make changes, not sacrifices, changes. Because, I mean, that, I slipped into the trap. <laughs> you don't, it's, we're not asking anyone to make sacrifices. We're asking people to change. Is it nationalism? Is it politicians aren't good at change? I mean, why, why are the politics stuck, do you think? 
I think the first thing is that we forget how reliant we are on fossil fuels. So about 80% of all the energy generated around the world is generated from fossil fuels. And even though renewables are going up everywhere all the time, actually, if you look at the energy, they're just producing the expansion. They are not changing. They are not replacing the fossil fuels. And that's something we really need to move into. So that's the first thing. The second thing is because fossil fuels are so tied into our society, there are lots of lock-ins that we don't realize. So if we take the 25 largest fossil fuel companies in the world, 19 of them are either state or part state owned. And therefore, they get huge subsidies, tax breaks, because these countries want the petrochemical dollar. And so therefore, when people turn around to me and say, oh, climate change is a failure of capitalism, actually, no, it's a failure of the nation state. It's because states are protecting their fossil fuel industry because it generates the money. And so what we need to do is try to actually break that and actually make sure that fossil fuels actually are not economic and therefore we can then break that reliance on them and basically try to make sure that we move to much cleaner renewable energy, which is better for everybody because it less pollution, less air pollution, less geopolitical stresses. And therefore, it's just trying to move those roadblocks, which are starting to change. If you see some of the big pledges coming out from some of the biggest econ economies in the world, we're starting to move. And that is super interesting because actually, you know, one of the sort of schools of thought goes, well, we need to tax fossil fuels, fundamentally a carbon tax on fossil fuels. But if you don't get some of these big nations with lots of fossil fuels to agree to that, then it's hard to implement that. But the other way of thinking about it is what we need to do is generate electricity locally, generate electricity from renewables, and then we won't need to be buying a fossil fuel in the first place. Therefore, it isn't necessarily going to be a problem. There are these big nation states with uh, large fossil fuel interests. Well, I think the most important thing is if you happen to be a government, how do you protect your people and their energy? How do you make sure that they don't get hit by price rises because uh, countries are playing sort of like silly political games by boosting production or shrinking production at any point in time? So if you generate lots of local energy, you can then regulate that. You can maintain the price so people don't have these huge price fluctuations. And therefore, it's about security as well as decarbonization. So I think it's really important to think it in the positive as well as the negative. So taking the UK then, if we shut down all of the North Sea oil and gas next week, do we have enough renewables? Obviously, we'd need to build them, but do we, we have the technology? You've already said that. Do we have enough of the natural resources, enough sun, wind, wave in the UK to generate all of our electricity renewably forever? Or would we still be relying on French nuclear imports or other means of getting electricity? So the first thing is I wouldn't shut down North Sea oil or North Sea gas Okay, at this moment in time. I know as a climate person, I should. But actually, if you're thinking of us as a nation state, all that would do is make us more reliant and more vulnerable to overseas fossil fuels. The way to actually deal with that is we accelerate all of our sort of renewable programs. For example, we make sure that as many houses as possible have solar panels. We subsidize that to make sure that it is affordable. We make sure that all new build houses have solar panels built in to the roofs instead of having to retrofit them. 
we make sure that we expand wind and hydro. But my colleagues at UCL will always whisper into my ear that we still need a 20% baseload, which we can always rely on. Because absolutely, guess what? When it's too windy or it's not windy, we don't generate wind. When it's not sunny, we don't do that. Hydro, etc. Tidal's great, but the problem with tidal is I would say the technology is about 20 years behind where wind is. Okay, so we can invest in all that. So we have to think about the base load. How do we actually produce that base load, which is really important because what people don't realize is you need one of those big switches. Okay, so for example, it is the final of sort of uh, strictly come dancing, and actually. The people in the power center are literally watching it, not because they want to know who's going to win, but they want to know the point that it finishes because everybody goes and switch their kettle on. Okay. And so that is interesting because you need this booster, which is that base load. And so that's something we need to actually discuss how we actually generate that base load. And again, sharing electricity with our neighbors, France, Holland, Europe, et cetera, absolutely essential because different countries need electricity at different times. We also then have to really think carefully about how do we move away, and I think this is a big nightmare, gas central heating. So we then have to talk about how do we as a nation tackle actually our poor housing? How do we actually tackle that and improve people's housing? Because some of the housing that people are renting is incredibly poor because we don't have enough people enforcing proper building regulations and proper environmental controls. And then we have to think about how, as a government, do you encourage but also make sure that the transition from gas central heating to heat exchangers actually occurs. The great thing about heat exchangers is, of course, as our temperatures heat up and we get those really nasty heat waves, which actually make uh, real problems for older, vulnerable people, we can actually cool houses down with heat exchangers. And heat exchanger is a sort of air source heat pump, which increasingly being talked about, and we're trying to get them into homes and businesses, and they work brilliantly. They do. But again, it's one of those supply and demands, because at the moment, they're quite expensive compared with, say, a new gas boiler. But we've seen this before. Solar panels 15 years ago was extortionate. But because of scale and demand, you use the market system to drive the whole system. So London has had this huge expansion in solar panels. The reason being is because all the boroughs got together. They contacted everybody in their boroughs and went, who wants solar panels? If you want solar panels, sign up with us. We will take this as a block to the industry and go, Who wants these thousands and thousands of customers? Make us an offer. And so the price was about a third of what it would have been if you just done it individually. Again, if the government turned around and said, right, we now going to take a city, Leeds, and we're going to convert it all to sort of heat exchangers, the price point would drop dramatically because companies go, hey, I'm taking that sort of half a million sort of customers. Great. Absolutely. I'm really interested in, you know, we've gone straight in with politics and just stepping back a little bit, there's quite a lot of emphasis at the moment. And I think we need to get people to change individual behavior as well. But I feel sometimes it'd be good to get your view on this, that we're letting big corporations and governments off the hook because they're sort of standing back while we have quite often green on green or environmentalists sort of saying, well, it's sort of saying, well, you're not a true environmentalist unless you're vegan and vegetarian isn't enough and eating less meat's not good enough. You need to eat no meat or you must have an electric car. Behavior change, I think, is important, but do you think we've got too much of that? And as a result, we're sort of stepping back from politics and getting big corporates to change? 
So I'll be honest, I do not believe that that sort of extreme green is the way to go because I know so many normal people, okay, they have busy lives. They're desperately working one or two jobs. They are trying to get their kids to school on time. They're trying to do their kids' homework. They're trying to get them to eat healthily. So they've got all these things that they're worried about. And then scientists and other colleagues come along and go, hey, could you just stop for a minute and start worrying about the whole fate of the planet? It's just like they don't have the bandwidth. So for me, I think it's a tripartite. We have government, corporations, and individuals, and they're all important in decarbonizing our economy. So government is really important, and we need to demand that they change because, of course, they have the regulations, they have the taxes, they have incentives, and they can subsidize. So they have lots of really interesting levers to actually build in sort of like change into society. And I also have to mention one of the things that people don't realize is government constantly funds science. This is why we were ready to produce a vaccine for COVID because of 40 years of public funding. Okay, same with all the technology that we're looking for to actually deal with climate change. Government has been quietly funding this over the last 40 or 50 years, and so therefore it's all ready. We need corporations, okay, because corporations are entrepreneurial, they're fast moving, they're rapid, and they can actually do things that government can't. And so government needs to incentivize them, and so do individuals, so companies actually start to move. And I work with so many amazing companies, from billion-dollar companies down to startups, all of whom are going, hang on, how do I actually go carbon neutral? How do I actually hit neutrality as quick as possible and do it in the efficient way and actually let our customers and consumers know we're doing it and how do we help them? But there is a big role for the individuals because individuals, there are small changes that they can make which are all very easy to do, which are in my book. But also what they can do is they can demand change. So actually individuals can say, government, you're not up to scratch. We need this. We know this is a win-win. Why aren't you doing it? Why aren't we having electric cars in every single major city? Because we know that's going to half air pollution overnight. Therefore, I'm going to be healthier. My children are going to be healthier. Asthma, chest infections, all of that will go down. And ultimately, of course, saves money for the NHS. So the country will save money by going electric. We also need individuals to protest. I mean, what has been incredibly effective has been the Friday strikes. Young people basically once a month stepping out of school going, yeah, I know, I know I should be in school, but this is so important. The fate of our planet is important. And that looking to their elders and saying, okay, guys, you muck this up, okay? You can solve it. And we really want you to start doing this before we get into power. Because as Greta said, we, the youth, don't want to look back and go, well, you failed. You basically caused all of this. At least you have to actually start the process of saving the planet and therefore have a proper legacy. Otherwise, what have you done in power? So that's a really powerful message. And that really has hit home to many, I would say, politicians that go, wow, being hated by the whole of the youth. And do you think across that tripod of sort of responsibilities, if you like, do you think we're talking as a society enough about climate change. You've been doing this for many years. You've written many articles and you are, you know, an academic, but also a communicator. And what's your view? Do you think we're talking about it enough? Do you think we're talking about it too much? Are we alienating people? 
in my list of things that individuals can do, my number one thing is talk about it. Sounds really strange because we're in this sort of culture whereby we'll happily talk to people about what furniture the prime minister wants in his flat and whether he should get rid of the John Lewis stuff, you know, and we'll talk about who wins the British Bake Off or Strictly. And that's all fine. What we don't do is talk about what can we do to actually improve our environment? What can we do to improve where we live and what we do? And what's really interesting is the reason I say this is I've seen so many times that someone will have a bit of climate anxiety, you know, be really worried about this. They'll go into their organization, could be a big company, could be a university, and they'll just talk to someone to get it off their chest at the water cooler, you know, that classic sort of like over a cup of tea, etc. And that other person will go, yeah, I'm worried as well. And suddenly, they start to actually agitate. And I call them green viruses. And what happens is they start going, well, hang on, are there little things that we can do? And I've seen a billion dollar company go from what's the environment to being contaminated in that way, it going right up to the CEO, and suddenly they're going to go carbon neutral by 2028. My own university is going to go carbon neutral by 2030 after 10 years of just agitation. And then the powers that be just went, that's what Mark's been going on for the last 15 years. Right, now to chime. So for me, talk about it because people think, oh, I'm so little, there isn't anything I can do. You'll be amazed. All the incredible little things that you can do in your company, your organization, your church, your sports uh, um, group, etc. all of these things. And it's interesting because that really makes a difference, not just to the environment and your carbon footprint, but how people feel. And it releases some of that anxiety. And I've got friends who are clinical psychologists who are now dealing with particularly young people with mental health concerns, really because of this whole environmental and climate change anxiety. So just being able to start doing something and empowering people is really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And talking of talk, let's get to Glasgow and COP26. So I want to ask you what you're hoping to get from COP in Glasgow, uh, which will be going on as this is aired. But before we do that, in the interests of sort of education and communication, could you give us a little potted history of the COPs and how we got to Glasgow and, and what we'll be expecting there without it being too, <laughs> too big a question? Okay, not a problem at all. So people get confused about what is COP. COP stands for Conference of the Parties. And what it is, is all the countries of the world have signed up to the UNFCCC, which is the UN process to negotiate about climate change. And this kicked off at the Rio conference in 1992, which was the Earth Summit. This is where all the leaders of the world came together and realized that we need to deal with all the environmental issues, including climate change. It actually meets every year. So there's a COP meeting at the end of each year. The only one that didn't happen was last year because of COVID. But what people don't realize is that this is a constant process. It's not just everybody turns up in Glasgow for two weeks. These negotiations are going on every single day of every single year. And it's a constant process. And there are specialist groups that meet all through the year. So this is a culmination of a process. The first agreement was in Kyoto in 1997, where the developed world already agreed to make cuts on their emissions. We then had the Copenhagen 2009, which was an absolute disaster and basically set us back for 10 years. 
So what we have to remember is the Paris Agreement, which was signed in 2015, that was the watershed. Because I have to say, the French were amazing. They were so good at this global diplomacy that they got all 197 countries to sign up to making significant pledges to cut greenhouse gases. And the executive summary is brilliant because it says, we, the leaders of the world, pledge to keep climate change to under two degrees above pre-industrial levels and have an aspirational target of one and a half degrees Celsius. And that was the agitation by the least developed countries and the small island nations that basically got that in. And that then opened the whole thing about discussing, well, how do we get to net zero? How do we as a well decarbonize by the middle of the century? So COP26 in Glasgow is really the stock take to say, hey, how are the world doing? How are we doing with the Paris Agreement? But using the Paris Agreement as a base level, then say, how can we improve our ambition? How can we encourage countries of the world to actually step up and actually make bigger changes? And there have been some really interesting announcements over the last year and a half. So 2019, UK announces that they are going net carbon zero by 2050. This year, they announced that by 2030, we'll cut our emissions by 78%. The EU are going to go net carbon zero by 2050. They've announced a 55% cut by 2030. The US has come on and said, okay, we're going to half our emissions by 2030. That's only in nine years time. And then we're going to get to net zero by 2050. And then the really interesting one, China and the Premier announced at the UN and said, we think our emissions will peak by 2030. But we are then working on getting to net zero by 2060. So you have the three huge major economic powers, US, Europe and the UK, and of course China, all going net zero. Now, how quickly we do that is another matter. And it does feel like there's sort of a new wave of honesty, and in particular with China saying, you know, to the world, we're actually going to peak and then we're going to deal with it rather than it being this sort of obfuscation about where they actually are, which feels like a big change of approach. Well, I think people misunderstand China. And I think a lot of climate change deniers use China as an excuse for us not doing anything. So China's obsession and its political obsession for the last sort of 20 years or so has been lifting its population out of extreme poverty. That has been their focus. It's like, why should Chinese people be poor? How can we actually enrich them and enrich the country? However, now they've got to that point where they are succeeding, have done incredibly well. They're now looking at going, hang on, now we actually have to make sure the environment is good for our people and that we actually have a global environment that actually works for the population. So it's an interesting shift. And that happens in lots of countries when they develop. Firstly, it's about looking after people and trying to economically develop. And then it's like, well, now we can worry about all the other luxuries like having clean air, clean water, you know. So then it's that stage. So they're now, I would say, a matured economy that can actually step back and go, right, okay, now we can worry about the bigger picture and actually, again, throw their weight around in the geosphere and basically say, hey, we are now one of the superpowers. We're going to make sure that we um, our voice is heard. And what are the things that you're hoping we're going to get out of uh, Glasgow? So I think the most important thing 
that people should realize about the COP process. It is, it is limited, it is a legal system, and it is a negotiation process. So we can only demand of COP what it's set up to do. So I have a wish list of three things that I would like COP to do. The first thing is the Paris Agreement says that we are all going to try and keep the world to two degrees or one and a half degrees if possible. And the scientists have shown that we need to hit global net zero by 2050 and then remove CO2 from the atmosphere. The problem with that, the agreements at the moment is that countries can pledge what they like. So they can pledge a slow reduction to the end of the century, or they can say we're going to go carbon neutral by 2020. Okay, that's not true because it hasn't happened. But again, they can pledge what they like. What I would like to see, and a lot of people have suggested, is we need to tie the pledges to the Paris targets. So companies have science-based targets. So therefore, they're all based on this decarbonization curve. So what we need to do is say to countries, right, we need you to agree that we're going to tie your decarbonization pathway to the overall global aim. And so we don't have this mismatch because at the moment, we're looking at more like three degrees if all the pledges are actually taken place. So that will help get all the countries aligned. So that's the first thing I really think we need. Second thing is we need to agree and make sure the money turns up. Okay, so there's the Global Climate Fund, supposed to be $100 billion. It's actually not that much money. However, it was agreed in 2009, ratified in 2010, but it has never quite turned up. I would say about 70 to 80 billion has turned up, but we need this. The reason being is because the least developed countries in this world and countries that rely very heavily economically on their fossil fuels we need to be able to help them decarbonize and convert their economies. And that's only fair considering that I would say the developed world has a huge legacy of putting carbon into the atmosphere. So this is the least we can do to actually help other countries develop in a different way, which is basically low carbon and a lot healthier and safer. And my last one is that we need to protect our natural carbon sink. So at the moment, when we emit a ton of carbon to the atmosphere, half of it is absorbed by the oceans and the biosphere. And it's been doing this all along. And we need to maintain that. So we need to have uh, stricter agreements about how we can avoid deforestation, make sure that we have more controls on land use changes, and then we can up the ante and say, okay, that's great. Now, how do we actually help countries to reforest and rewild and make sure that we protect the carbon sinks that we have now, which is our forests, our soils, and also then improve that. So these are the things that are legally underneath the COP process. So we can demand those. Other things, which we all want, will have to come later through other processes. Now that is a very, very good shopping list to get done. So um, we will see. And I'll be definitely looking out to see if those things materialise. And I hope you get everything on your uh, shopping list there, Mark. It's such an exciting time at the moment for the profession. Your life that got you into being a climate professional or down the journey of climate change. What was the thing that happened to you that made you get into this line of work? I feel it was a bit like the story of the frog in the cold water and then somebody slowly heating up the water. I went down the path of always been really excited about science and the environment. 
And so went off to university uh, doing physical geography and geology. And this led me to really be interested in how climate works and why it changed in the past. And I did my PhD at Cambridge on the big ice ages and why they were occurring. And then this led me down into understanding mechanisms such as greenhouse gases, plate tectonics, and all of those sort of interesting things. And that then started to open up lots of different pathways. And so my interest in climate change has been long term. I've been passionately studying why we evolved and how climate was involved for decades. And so it's really weird that sort of my knowledge of the Earth system as a whole plays really well when we're looking at climate change. And also it's quite interesting, but because I'm a geographer as well, I don't leave out humans. <laughs> so I find a lot of my colleagues will, ocean, atmosphere, you know, doo -doo -doo. and I'm going, yeah, people. <laughs> and so therefore, it's really interesting that I'm a proper Earth system scientist because I take all the parts of the system and throw them together. I think what has been, for me, one of the most interesting revelations, working with incredible colleagues. I mean, I have to say, I am so lucky, firstly, to be at UCL, but also to have so many friends and colleagues around the world who we do such cool stuff with. And one of the things is, Working with the paleoanthropologists and the archaeologists and the historians is realizing that humans' impact on the planet has a long history. We really have interacted with the biosphere, not always badly. So we look at, say, the Mediterranean. Some of the Mediterranean sort of things like olive groves and things like that, some of the most diverse ecosystems on the planet, but they're all human-generated. And so it's interesting that human-nature interactions aren't always bad. But we have to actually say to ourselves, how can we make this better? How can we actually influence nature to get the best out of it for the planet and ourselves? And I think that's where we have to step back and go, nature's not going to do it. We really are, unfortunately, in control of the global environment. We have to actually step up and go, okay, it looks like we're the custodians because we've mucked it up. How do we actually then work it? Because we are so influential and people just don't realize how much power we have, which is good and bad. So we just have to shift the dial more to the positive, good, looking after nature and ourselves. And in your lifetime, because you're looking at the planet and, and large sort of uh, scales of time, but in your lifetime, what does success look like? Because, you know, we might hit net zero, but actually the Earth's probably going to keep warming. And it might be, you know, by the time we're in our 80s or 90s, things might not have improved. So you're doing a huge amount of work around climate change and trying to persuade people to change and going to Glasgow and influencing politicians and scientists and decision makers. What does it look like, success? So this is the nice thing, because I think the messaging and the way people think about the future is changing. A couple of years ago, it would have been difficult to do this. But what we can do now is say, let's look at 2050. Let's look at what sort of planet we want. There will be nine and a half to 10 billion people on the planet. Okay, so that's another 2 billion people. And that will have stabilized by then. So we then have to say, well, hang on. What we want is able to feed all those people. And interestingly enough, we already produce enough to feed 10 billion people. It's just not getting to them and they don't have money to buy them. So we need to lift people out of extreme poverty. We need to make sure that they have enough energy to actually have a good life. We need to work out how to generate all that energy from renewables, remove the fossil fuels from our systems. Because people are now moving to cities, okay, so we are 
densifying. I love that American word. We are densifying sort of like our environment. So the world is getting a wilder place, which seems to be a bit of an oxymoron, whereby we're going to have two extra billion people on the planet, but they're all going to live in dense, big super cities, which means that because the world is getting wilder, we can reforest, we can rewild vast areas. So the interesting thing is, despite having more people, we can green the planet, we can make sure that people have access to food, water, energy. And what we can picture is this world whereby we all have electric cars, we all have heat exchangers, we all have houses that protect us and basically warm and cool and keep us how we want to be. We can see that we can have this wonderful system whereby we can go to work on our wonderful electric transportation if we want to, or we can basically work on Zoom, Teams, etc., and have this incredible interaction. And I think what we're picturing is a very different world where actually we have all the technology to do this. We have all the resources. And I really point this out. We have the money. Okay. I mean, it's not something that we have to worry about. I mean, we create something like $9 trillion every single year. And of course, that's going up by 3%. So money is not going to be the issue. It's about how you use it, how you distribute it, and how you actually think about it in a global terms. And it comes back to that incredible quote that you used at the beginning, which is, we have to, as individuals, see ourselves as part of a global species that We are working together to look after our fragile planet, to look after it for ourselves in a deeply selfish way, make sure everybody is looked after, but also look after it because it really is the only place that we know that life exists in the whole of the universe. We're going to go to a few of the sort of quick questions we ask everybody at the end now, Mark. It's been, I mean, I could just talk about this forever. I mean, it's just amazing. And your depth of knowledge is absolutely incredible. And your ability to communicate it in a very straightforward way is so refreshing. One of my questions is what's coming up that you are most excited about? I mean, you're going to, to COP in Glasgow next week. So it might not be the thing you're most excited about. I am really excited by the change in the global politics. If you had asked me two years ago, would Europe, UK, USA, and China all be aligned on the environmental issue, I would have not believed you. And I think that's an amazing thing. So I think for me, what is looking forward to is COP26 will be a success. For me, it is how much of a success. Do we have a little bit more ambition from countries? I mean, we've had some really interesting other very recent pledges, like Australia is going to go net carbon zero by 2050, but still burn coal. So we're not sure how they're going to do that. So we're having lots of other new countries coming into this. So what I'm looking forward to is seeing how ambitious we can make COP26, but then basically in 2022 and beyond going, wow, the corporate sector is really going for it, wanting to get to carbon neutrality. And huge companies basically going, we're going to do this in eight or nine years. And they're deeply competitive with each other, which I love. And then saying, for me, I'm going to be looking at every year stock taking and coming back and going, okay, we're doing well. Can we do better? I will say the first thing that will really please me is when the amount of CO2 that we put into the atmosphere each year starts to drop. And that for me, it'll be like, okay, we're over the hump. We're flattening the curve. Let's see how far down we can go. 
Brilliant. That is definitely something worth uh, looking forward to and being excited about. Finally, we will wrap up. We have the first Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame. What or who would you put in it? I'm going to put in solidarity. So what we need is all 197 countries in this world to actually realize that we need to work together to solve a lot of problems, not just climate change, but environmental degradation, extreme poverty, and global security. Those are my big four that we need to deal with in this century. Otherwise, our kids really will hate us. And I think that's important. And so for me, the magic thing that we need is solidarity. And it's really interesting when you talk to young people, because they are so connected in the world through their phones, the internet, etc., they realize that everybody in the world is almost exactly the same as them think in the same way, live in the same way, have the same desires and needs for the future. And that, combined with the idea that the world is quite a small and fragile place because they can connect with anybody, changes the way they think about society and the planet. And I think that solidarity will just grow and grow. Now, if we can accelerate that and our generation or the slightly older generation who's in power can actually grab that and go, okay, this is the mood coming out of the people who vote for me, then that would be great. But if not, there's a whole new generation that's just going to sweep us away and change the way they do politics in the world. So for me, put it in the box for the future. Solidarity is the key. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. So we're going to wrap up there. Mark, it's been brilliant having you on the show. Before we go, can you give the listeners a verbal plug of your book so they can find it as they're typing into Google as you talk? So can you just tell us about the amazing book that I'd highly recommend? I have written a book called How to Save Our Planet, The Facts. And I've written it in single sentences, and therefore it's basically bullet points. And it's a non-linear book. So you just pick it up and you can go into any chapter you like. So if you're suddenly really interested in what you as an individual can do, you go to chapter six. If you've got a relative or colleague who's a hardcore skeptic, you go to chapter five because my editor asked me to basically put in a chapter there to deal with some of her family issues. If you're a corporate uh, CEO, you go to chapter seven, etc. So don't feel you have to start at the beginning and work to the end. If you read all the book, that would be fantastic. It's just facts. It also, there's some also some fun facts, like, did you know that there are currently more Lego minifigures in the world than human beings? And there's a lot of human beings. And of course, guess what? Every single one of them is non-recyclable. I'll leave you with that. Brilliant, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bruce, for having me on. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. I'm Bruce Bradley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet remarkable people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O.